Good morning, church. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is our privilege to uh, look into God's Word together. If you are a guest, or if this is um, a new place for you, we're glad that you found your way to be here with us. And uh, what we're going to do this morning um, for the remainder of our time together is give our attention to God's Word. God has spoken, and we can hear Him speak as we open His Word and read His Word. And so we are going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible to follow along with, I'd encourage you to lean forward and grab one from the uh, seat back in front of you and find your way to, I think it was page 981, 980. And uh, that's where we will be this morning in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It was three weeks ago now that we read through the entirety of Paul's letter together as a church family. I don't know if you were able to be present when we did that, um, but what a blessing it was to just let our church family together experience just the simple yet profound power of the Word of God. And so this morning we're going to begin the um, expository series in Paul's letter that will take us here through the next couple of months together. Philippians contains some of the most beloved passages of Scripture that might come to mind. Um, Philippians 1 says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Some of you know that verse. Philippians 3, we hear about how Paul wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Maybe we don't know that verse as well, because it's quite intimidating. Chapter 4 is just chock full of those memorable verses, such as, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or verse 11 says that, in whatever situation I am, he's learned to be content. Or verse 13 of chapter 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a commonly overused passage, but very, very well known uh, for those who have been Christian for a while. Verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's all sorts of these gems that we have. Um, a lot of us have in our memory, and they are found and located in Philippians. This morning, we're going to begin by unpacking just the first two verses. Now, don't worry, we won't go this slow through the, entire of the entirety of the book. But I believe that there's enough in these first two verses that sets up what's coming in this letter that will be helpful for us to have a deeper appreciation for what Paul writes uh, as he continues on. And so um, in the salutation, it's like every other Greco-Roman letter written in the day. Um, it's different from the letters that we write today. We write letters with dear so-and-so. We write the body of the letter, and then we sign off at the end. Not so in Paul's day. What they did in his day is they would establish who was writing, who they're writing to right there in the very beginning. And then they would get to the body content of the letter. And so this sermon is going to be organized around some key terms that are found in these first two verses. And I've organized them into three points. And here's how, here's how we're going to work through this uh, text this morning. Number one, the centrality of Jesus. Number two, servants and saints. And number three, grace and peace. All right, we're going to look through this passage with those three organizing ideas, the centrality of Jesus, servants and saints, and grace and peace. Look at verses 1 and 2, and notice that in the span of two verses, Paul refers to Jesus three times, and that's no accident. 
In fact, as you keep reading this letter, you're going to encounter Jesus over and over and over again. And if you're not a Christian, as you read this letter, it'll be obnoxious to you because of how often he keeps repeating and drawing back the, the mind of the reader to Jesus Christ. Paul, in the opening here, describes himself and Timothy as servants of Jesus. He identifies his readers as saints in Christ Jesus. And then he says that grace and peace come from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wonder if the preoccupation that Jesus, of Jesus, that Paul has of Jesus here, is a needed reminder for us. You know, we can start a series in a book of the Bible and kind of be very self-absorbed in our pursuit of the Bible. That's how selfish we are, right? We can take God's word and make it all about us. But yet, what we find here is Paul's preoccupation with Christ. And he's obnoxiously reminding his readers about the centrality of Jesus, and I think it may be a needed reminder for us as well. We might wonder, well, what does it look like if somebody is preoccupied with Jesus? Do they just talk about him a lot? Do we have to, like, throw these little phrases in our, on our vocabulary just to make it, you know, kind of virtue signaling? Do I need to tweet about it? Or I guess if Twitter is around any longer, you're aware of any of that. What are we supposed to do with all that? Well, it's very practical because as we keep reading, we don't have to wonder what it looks like to have Christ as a central figure in your life. We see it demonstrated through the pen of Paul as he continues to write. And as he continues to write, we find these next key terms, servants and saints. So the centrality of Jesus is established. And then we see what it looks like to have Jesus as center. And he's these terms, servants and saints. You see it there? He says, uh, Paul and Timothy, he identifies himself, servants of Christ Jesus. And then here is he identifies his recipients to all the saints. This opening is different than Paul's typical opening of Scripture. If you were to page through other letters that he wrote in our New Testament, like Romans or Ephesians or Galatians, Paul begins his letter differently because he identifies himself as an apostle. And that is a title, that is a, a title that signifies his spiritual authority in the life of the church, of being God's, uh, one of God's spokesmen to deliver inscripturated truth to his people. But in this letter, in Philippians, he does not have any, any writing at all of his apostleship, which is unique because what he's doing here is he's identifying himself only as a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, that word servant is the Greek word that stands behind the idea of slave or slavery or being enslaved. And it's highlighting the theme of humility. It's prevalent throughout this letter in that servant idea, that doulos, this slave idea, was what comes to mind. I know it's kind of a politically controversial idea, right? What comes to our mind is often Western African slavery. And the slavery that Paul had in his time was different. But nevertheless, it still would have had unmistakable overtones of humility and submission in that Greco-Roman context. Some slaves held high station and fulfilled honorable roles in society. Other slaves were very subservient to a master and having other roles. But in all of it, there was a clear relationship between master and servant, master and slave. There was a subservience in that role. It brought with it an unmistakable sense of humility and subservience. Now, does it bother you that Paul would call himself a slave? 
I think it might kick back against our modern sensibilities, our modern age sensibilities. It sounds politically incorrect, right? I mean, Paul, couldn't you choose a different term? Especially in our American modern context, the land of the free, the home of the brave, the land of the free. How can we talk about slavery when we have a nation that's kind of pursuing this idea of freedom? But the reality of it is that all of us are slaves in some way to someone. All of us are. Paul wrote to other Christians about this idea of being a slave in Romans chapter 6. He says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And so the scripture here is putting everyone into one of two categories. You are a slave of sin or you are a slave of God. Those are the categories that the scripture presents for us to understand ourselves in this world. And you can determine which one you are by identifying who you obey. Jesus taught about it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. In that particular context, he was talking about relationship to money and how it can enslave a person. And Jesus was dispelling the notion of, well, I can serve both. No, we are all enslaved to something, to someone. So the question then is, what or who do you serve with your life? Who or what do you obey in life? What is it that you want most in life? A spouse, a promotion, a secure retirement, maybe to be well-liked or well-thought-of by others? Well, what does it look like if you are a slave of Jesus? Well, in Philippians, we could start to do a survey, and for the purpose of this sermon, we're not, but you could just survey through Philippians and see in Paul's life what it looks like to be a slave of Christ. In fact, just glance to verse 21. If you are a slave of Christ, if Christ is central in your life, you understand your identity as a servant of Jesus, it means you will say things like this, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain, because then dying is to be with Christ. It means you'll have a heart that will express truths like this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. You're going to look at the things that the world clamors for and considers to be successful and valuable, and instead, when you are a servant of Jesus, you will say this of those things, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Review your life for the past month. Do a quick personal inventory. What does your mind daydream about? What gets you excited? From where do you derive passion for living? Is Jesus anywhere in those thoughts. Something that has become prevalent in the mindset of our modern age is this heightened status of our feelings. I see this in our modern age effort to find happiness. And by the way, this is why we all are enslaved to something. We are all looking for happiness somewhere. 
Our world is, and we are as Christians too. As Christians, though, we understand that true happiness is located in knowing and enjoying God forever. But our world is looking for happiness, and our world demonstrates slavery to those ideas. Our society has equated happiness with a feeling, which in turn turns that feeling of happiness into a reality, a perceived reality. I hope this is making sense. So it means this. In our modern-day context, if you feel something, our modern-day context says, then that must be true. That is who you are. And so our world is chasing this idea of feeling. Let me explain it to you this way. On November 16th of this year, just a few days ago, The Atlantic published an article entitled, America is Pursuing Happiness in All the Wrong Places. It's written by Arthur C. Brooks. Arthur Brooks teaches a class about happiness at Harvard Business School. And in this class, he asks his students, what is happiness? The students, and I'm quoting here now from the article, the students' answers always have the word feeling in them. It is the feeling of being with people I love, for example. Wrong, he answers. That's like saying your Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. Happiness is not a feeling. Rather, feelings are evidence of happiness. I know we're getting into the deep philosophical world here. Hang with me, okay? As a social scientist, again, I'm quoting him, I believe that happiness should be understood as a combination of three phenomena, enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. Enjoyment, according to Brooks, is pleasure consciously and purposefully experienced so it can create a positive memory. That's why you think of happy memories. You're thinking of something you've enjoyed. Satisfaction is the joy of an achievement, the reward for a job well done. And then there's meaning. You can make do without enjoyment for a while, he says, and even without a lot of satisfaction, but without meaning, you will be utterly lost. That is the psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl's argument in his classic book, Man's Search for Meaning, which, by the way, I highly recommend you read. It's two parts. Read the first part. The second part, meh, not so much. But the first part, Man's Search for Meaning, very highly recommend it to you. Back to the article. Without a sense of meaning, a sense of the why of our existence, our lives cannot be endured. Here's a quick diagnostic tool I sometimes use to find out if someone has a good sense of their life's meaning. Again, still quoting Brooks here. I ask them two questions. Why do you exist? For what would you be willing to die? Well, Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What would you say? What do you serve? I honestly want us to assess our lives with this. Not just sit and kind of sift through a little bit of Christianese on a Sunday morning, but genuinely and honestly let the Scripture penetrate our hearts to evaluate what is it we're really living for. Who are you a servant of? Do you know that Jesus died for you? To bring you into a relationship with him of endless enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning, that's the central message of Christianity. That's who we are as Christians. It's, if all this talk about being a servant of Jesus offends you, Maybe you're not a Christian and it offends you. The idea of losing self-autonomy or self, uh, the, the rule of yourself, which, by the way, anytime you enter any meaningful relationship, you voluntarily give up freedom. But glance ahead at Philippians 2 and you look at verse 7 and you see that Jesus became a servant. Same word, a slave. 
A servant, he died so that you could be forgiven of your sin and have eternal life with him. And the Bible explains that God created the world and everything he created was good. But humankind, at that time it was Adam and Eve, they sinned. They doubted God, they disobeyed him, and they choose, they chose to defy his rule and reign. That act of treason, rebellion against God, is what is called sin. The result of that is that every person born since then is and who has ever lived is born with this rebellious orientation in their heart against God. And because of our rebellion, we deserve God's judgment and eternal condemnation. So what are we to do? Well, God sent his son, Jesus, to do a great saving work. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a death he did not deserve. And he rose up from the grave so that everyone who turns from the rebellious rebellious uh, acts against God who instead embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior will be saved from eternal condemnation. Does that describe you? This is why Paul can find joy in being a servant of Jesus. Referencing the Brooks article, the sense of finding purpose and meaning, enjoyment, satisfaction. When you know that you have been saved, loved, redeemed and rescued like that, it changes your whole life. Jesus said it like this in Matthew, Mark 8, excuse me, in Mark 8. He called the crowd to him with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You're like, boy, that sounds like slavery kind of words. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You see the idea of dying to self, taking up a cross? You're saying, that sounds a lot like slavery, like I'm serving Jesus. Exactly. But friends, you realize that the Scriptures are saying that is how you find life. Our world is presenting this. Find life. Live the good life. Fear of missing out. Pursue. Pursue. Happiness. Friends, Christianity is saying, no, there's greatest purpose and meaning in what? Being, understanding your identity as a servant of Jesus. Christianity provides a resilient enjoyment in this life. Resilient because this is a rough and tumble life, isn't it? And there's all sorts of things that happen in life that threaten our sources of happiness. But as Christians, it's a resilient enjoyment in this life because there's the promise of even greater enjoyment to come. Christianity, the gospel, Jesus, provides the deepest satisfaction our souls long for. And what is that? It's to be fully known and at the same time completely loved. And biblical Christianity infuses everything in life with great God-sized meaning and purpose because it's the greatest purpose we can have is knowing and enjoying God forever. He made us. So in other words, being a servant of Jesus is not bad. What I'm trying to do is remind us again of the glory that we have of being God's people, of being called servants. So I'll ask it again. For what are you willing to give your life? What did you give your life to last week? last month. If God tarries, if he continues to give you life as we look ahead at a new year in just a couple of months, what will you give your life to in that next year? 
You see, it's possible to take something good and make it ultimate. It's possible to be enslaved to a relationship, to a child, to a job or career, to a friendship. Those are not bad things. Those are good things. Friends, there's only one ultimate, and it's Jesus. At its core, what Paul is doing here in this, in this opening is reminding his readers of who he is, who they are in Christ. They are servants of Christ Jesus. But the next term, saints, you see that in verse, verse 1? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Not only are Christian servants, we are also saints. And this term is a bit confusing to some of our modern ears, depending upon your religious background. To some, they hear the word saint, and you think of, perhaps, an elevated, uh, a person of elevated rank and status in some religious order. Somebody who has achieved sainthood in that religious order. Or sometimes it's used as a figure of speech to describe somebody of really exceptional and extraordinary virtue. Like, oh, she's a saint, or oh, he's a saint. You're right? You've seen something and you use that kind of phrase. Paul doesn't use it that way. Paul uses the term here to describe all Christians in the church at Philippi. You notice that? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. And in fact, as you read in Acts 9, it becomes very clear that that's how the New Testament Christians use that word, saints. It was to describe one another. It wasn't a separate class of religious order. It was all people who knew God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the word saint harkens back to the Old Testament idea of something being set apart. And if you read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of confusing things in there about temple worship and sacrifices and certain things being set apart for the use of worshiping God in the temple. It was a fork. It was a cup. It was a bowl. Ordinary stuff, right? But they were set apart for a particular use of worshiping God. They were saintly. They were holy. They were set apart. Same idea, same term. In the New Testament, it refers not just to, it doesn't refer any longer to implements in the temple worship. We now are the temple of God as, God, as God's people, excuse me. And because we are now God's people, we are now saints. We are now set apart. It's not just a cup or a bowl for temple worship. We as God's, as God's dwelling presence in us, now we then are set apart. And that is the idea that Paul is drawing out here. Philippians it reminds us and calls us to live out our true identity as servants and as saints. So church family, we are saints. Now, I know this is hard for us to believe sometimes, okay? Maybe it's hard for us to believe about the people we're sitting closest to right now because we remind each other regularly about how unsaintly we are. Friends, this is who we are. We are servants and saints. So question, do you think of yourself like that? When you're at work, do you remember you're a saint? When you are on vacation, do you remember that you are a saint? If you know God through Jesus, you're a saint. When you get home after work, when you get the kids from school after you're done running errands, are you mindful that you are a saint? You're not trying to achieve sainthood. You're not earning it. That is not Christianity. You have been made God's child. You are his saint. Just imagine if you remembered that this next week. How might that change your marriage? You're married. If, okay, if your spouse knows Christ, you're married to a saint. You are a saint. 
in your parenting. You are a parent who is a saint. (laughs) How would it change your family relationships? How might it change your church friendships? In just a moment, we're going to look at the final pairing of terms, grace and peace. But before we do that, I want us to see how Paul identifies the three parts of a healthy church. Do you see that in the next phrase? He says, Do all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and then notice this, with the overseers and deacons. Now, uh, we could do a deep dive into the doctrine and practical ramifications of these offices and kind of tease out all the doctrine. We're not doing that this morning. But I just want to point out how Paul here just does a head nod towards these three components of a healthy church. The Christians in general are the main audience of his letter, the church family, all saints, yet the church is led and served. Elders, which is, a, which is akin to overseers or pastors, the New Testament uses those terms interchangeably, overseers serve by leading, and deacons lead by serving. And all together, we are servants and saints in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is doing here, I think, is giving a little Polaroid snapshot of who we are as the spiritual family that God has made in his church. How then should we relate to one another? How should we function together as this church family who are saints, who are being led and being served? How are we to do that? Well, that brings us to this final pairing of terms, grace and peace. You find that in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Paul is using a common greeting of his day. Uh, it was common for the word, uh, the verb form of the word, kareen, to be used as a greeting. Greetings. Instead, he uses a Christian twist to that common greeting of the day. If you were to read letters written in his day, you would have seen that word, greetings, greetings. And he has a very, it's very close, but it's just subtly different. It's a Christian twist on that word where he writes the word, not karin, but charis, grace. And it has, it's loaded with meaning. He had something very specific in mind when he, when he uh, put that word there. What is grace? Grace is the free, unmerited love and favor of God to sinners. That is what grace is. Now, grace, that sounds simple, right? The free, unmerited love and favor to sinners. You're like, yeah, okay, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard the word grace, you've heard definitions of grace, you're like, yeah. I mean, that's like Christian 101. Come on, Sean, let's get into better stuff. There is nothing better than this. Nothing. In fact, it is so astonishing. Our minds have a hard time embracing this. Our hearts have a hard time really taking God at his word on what he's shown us here. It is free, unmerited love and favor of God to sinners. It's sometimes been remembered with the acrostic, okay, grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches, G-R, you following me here? Okay, God's G, riches, R, at Christ's expense. So some passages that describe grace, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, here it is, that, through, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So imagine if Warren Buffett 
said, I am going to exchange bank accounts with you. And you say, what's the catch? And he says, nothing. No strings attached. You get my bank accounts. That would be grace. Friends, it's even better than that what God has done. Because our bank account was bankrupt. Okay? And what God has done is he's given us himself in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, of our trespasses. How is this possible? According to the riches of his grace. That's how. So the whole idea of forgiveness, which, by the way, is really a lost and a problematic term in our modern age, even in our Christian thinking about this, okay? We've got a lot of therapeutic feeling being pushed into the term of forgiveness. Now, I know I just loaded us up mentally with that idea, but just, just hang on there. But the whole idea of forgiveness is uniquely Christian. It is based on and built on God's saving acts toward us in Jesus Christ. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, if you're not a Christian, those verses that I just quoted here that you should have been able to read there on screen, that is what makes us Christians. Grace. And Paul wants his readers to remember who they are, servants and saints, and how they became servants and saints of Jesus. Grace and peace. That's how. So we probably know this intellectually, but our hearts are reluctant to embrace this truth because we don't like the we don't like that we can't earn grace. Our our natural mechanism is to try to earn it, to try to somehow achieve it, to try to somehow merit it. And Christianity defies all of those notions. It's really one of the ways that it sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Every other world religion or ideology out there is saying, clean up your life, follow this step, follow this process, adhere to these rules, obey these regulations, and then you will then, you know, then you'll achieve some measure of success. Then you'll achieve this, this elevated status. Christianity says, no, you are such a loser. You have sinned so badly. It took nothing less than the Son of Jesus, than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. So you see, as soon as you try to earn grace, it's not grace. It's not. Christianity is all about grace. And you're like, well, maybe you feel like your rebellion against God is just too big. Maybe you feel like you're just such a big sinner that you're hopeless. Maybe you feel so guilty, so self-condemned. At night, when it's dark and there's no other distractions around, Maybe those thoughts just descend upon you and haunt you and, and, and you wrestle with the, with the condemnation that you know you deserve for your poor treatment of others or your selfishness or your anger or your lust or your gossip or your greed or your lying or you keep going on and filling the blanks. Maybe you think it's too, you're too bad. Well, you're wrong because God's grace defies those odds. Romans 5.20 says this, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there is no one in this room that can, out, that, that can outpace God's grace with your sin. God's grace abounds all the more. 
And what Paul is doing here with his opening words, he's not just throwing out Christian words just to kind of make it sound Christian. These are loaded. He's grabbing the attention of his reader. Grace. This is who you are. You are a people of grace. And it flows endlessly from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We are a spiritual family by the grace of our Heavenly Father. So this means that if you know God through Jesus, then you are a person of grace. You have received God's grace. So here's some questions. When was the last time you showed grace to someone? You see, when we receive grace like this, it should radically transform the way we relate to others. When was the last time you showed grace to someone? I'm asking this because we live in an age that celebrates... We live in an age that is fueled on outrage. It's fueled on outrage. It elevates the idea of victim status because if you are a victim, you can be outraged. And we have families getting torn apart because they can't even talk about things differently because they are in such outrage against one another on all this and it's just trickling through society. We just came through an election cycle. Okay, question. When was the last time you showed grace to someone? Here's the good news. Okay, you're like, man, you just reminded me of how bad the world is around us. But here's the good news. We're a people of grace and that's what our world needs to see. Where else are they going to see it? They should and they can see it from us as Christians. It's one of the ways we can strengthen our witness in the world. Well, we, instead of being full of outrage about everything else, now there are some things to be outraged about, okay? I'm not saying we don't care about anything. But instead of being a people who are marked by what we're against, maybe we should be marked by, man, can I tell you about Jesus, about God, His grace to me as a sinner? When was the last time you were gracious? Because we are a people of grace, we should be able to show and demonstrate grace to each other. How might your relationships be changed if you remembered what Paul is reminding his readers of? Grace. Grace. And peace. The last term for us this morning. Paul isn't done. Peace here. And by the way, the order here is essential. Grace, then peace. You will only know the peace of God after you have received the grace of God. And I believe the word peace here that Paul writes is referring to two aspects of peace. Think of one coin, two sides. The coin is peace, but there's two sides of that peace. The one is peace with God, and the second side of that coin is the peace of God. This will be quick. What do you mean, what's the difference there? It's described in these two verses. Peace with God is described in this passage, Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, here's the result. We have peace with God. And all along in Romans, Paul is writing about there's a problem that we have. We are enemies of God. There's this condemnation. We are unrighteous. We are going to face God's righteous wrath because of our unrighteousness. And how do we have peace? How do we find peace with God? What kind of treaty can be drawn? Jesus in his blood inked that treaty. We have peace with God. What is the peace of God? That's described in Philippians chapter 4, okay? It's our, our book. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result? And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's what we all long for, right? To be a people of peace. Here's the good news. Christian family, that's who we are. 
We are a people of grace and of peace. So questions. Do your neighbors know this about you? You are a person of peace. I'm talking gospel peace. As we went through this last election cycle, was the peace of God reigning and ruling in your heart? It can. Do you bring God's peace with you or do you bring the strident, polarizing spirit of our day? Again, there are plenty of things to truly care deeply about and to fight about, right? Truth matters, God matters, Jesus matters, yes. But yet, are you known most by what you're against or are you known as a person of grace and peace? In Jesus Christ. Putting all this together then, if there's one takeaway from today, here's what it is. If you're a Christian, I hope that you are reminded about who you are. Who you are. There's all sorts of different roles that we identify ourselves with. It's impossible to identify yourself without referencing a role. You ask somebody, who are you? And they're going to say, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm, they're going to talk about a role. How about this? How about the role that we think of ourselves primarily would be Jesus-centric, cent, uh, what's the word? Jesus as the center of it, right? The centrality of Jesus in this way. We are servants and saints, and we are people of grace and peace. Friends, that's who we are. That's who we are. That's who we are this Thanksgiving season. That's who we are this Christmas season. That's who we are as we engage in our world around us. We are servants and saints. We are people of grace and peace. Now, our world needs this. The only hope for the world is Jesus, and we are his people. Servants and saints, grace and peace. So think of this. What if we lived this week with this truth reverberating in our hearts and our heads? We're servants of Christ. Let's be practical. How can you serve Christ this week? How can you serve his church? Some of you already have done that. How would God, how can you serve this week? We're a family of saints. Is there something in your life you must change to be true to your set-apart identity? Is the gospel call in your life something that's been a little blurred and you realize, oh man, I'm a Christian. I'm called apart from that into Christ. That's who I am. Thank you, God, for your word to remind me. We're people of grace. We're people of peace. Think of it this way. What long-term effect might this identity, if we really embraced it and lived it out by faith, what long-term effect might this have on your family, on your workplace? What kind of witness in the world might we have as a church family? Church, there is much for us to enjoy and learn and grow together in Philippians. These truths that he just introduced in these first two verses, he's going to unpack with just glorious splendor. So I want to encourage you, make Philippians your, your regular companion over the next few weeks. And I want to ask you this, will you pray about this? That we would understand as a church family more and more what it means for Jesus to be center that we would understand ourselves as servants and saints and a people of grace and peace.